Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. My parents would sometimes take me on drives in the countryside with the intention of getting lost and finding their way back home. It always worked out fine with my dad at the wheel, but it seems that I did not inherit his good sense of direction. Because given a choice, I'll tend to take the exit or fork in the road that takes me further away from home. So I was that early adopter nerd who printed out MapQuest maps in both directions anytime I had a driving trip planned, and who to this day pops out of the subway in New York City looking slightly frazzled until I can figure out which direction is which. Being lost is no fun, but the upside of getting lost a lot is that you discover a lot of new things in places that you otherwise wouldn't have. As it turns out, a similar phenomenon occurs in teaching and learning, and research suggests that we may be hindering our students' learning by trying to be too helpful. How is that possible? Well, generally, teaching looks something like, step one, explain how to do something, step two, show students what it looks like in action, and step three, fix their off-target attempts to help them minimize failure and reward them for their successes. This sequence tends to emphasize getting to the correct answer as expeditiously as possible. It's how schools are often set up, it's how many of us are taught, and it's how we parent as well. The tell-show-do model makes a lot of sense, but there's little room or time for exploration, floundering around in the dark, and discovery. And growing evidence suggests that the experience of being lost may actually enhance learning in the long run, even though at first it all looks like a hot mess. But how could that be? Isn't the goal of learning to minimize mistakes and failure? Well, a pair of researchers conducted a study of productive failure to see if early floundering would lead to better learning than the traditional teaching approach. They took two 7th grade classrooms and gave them a 30-minute, 9-question pretest to see how much they already knew about how to calculate average speed. And then their learning experiences began to diverge. The direct instruction class began learning about average speed with a lecture. The teacher explained the concepts, worked through some examples, encouraged questions, and had students solve practice problems. Then they reviewed the problems and discussed the solutions. For homework, they were assigned similar problems in their workbook, and the problems ranged from simple to moderate in difficulty, but were essentially plug-and-chug type questions. Here's an example. Jack walks at an average speed of 4 kilometers per hour for one hour. He then cycles 6 kilometers at 12 kilometers per hour. 
find his average speed for the whole journey. They repeated this lecture, practice, homework, feedback process for seven class periods. Pretty typical sounding process, right? The productive failure class, on the other hand, was split up into small groups, and each was tasked with solving two complex problems. For instance, hummingbirds are small birds that are known for their ability to hover in midair by rapidly flapping their wings. Each year, they migrate approximately 9,000 kilometers from Canada to Chile and then back again. The giant hummingbird is the largest member of the hummingbird family, weighing 18 to 20 grams. It measures 23 centimeters long, and it flaps its wings between 70 and 80 times per minute. For every 18 hours of flying, it requires 6 hours of rest. The broad-tailed hummingbird flaps its wings 100 to 125 times per minute. It is approximately 10 to 11 centimeters long and weighs approximately 3 to 4 grams. For every 12 hours of flying, it requires 12 hours of rest. If both birds can travel 1 kilometer for every 550 wing flaps and they leave Canada at approximately the same time, which hummingbird will get to Chile first? They were given these problems with no teacher support or guidance, but simply allowed two class periods to try to solve each problem. So four classes total. There was also no homework, though they did receive extra problems to work on individually when the group problems were complete, and this took up two class periods. After six sessions of working on their own, the class spent their final class session sharing their solutions and strategies with the teacher and each other. Only then did the teacher finally explain how to solve these problems the correct way and help the students go through their previous work fix their mistakes, and ensure they could arrive at the correct answer. Ultimately, the productive failure group spent seven class sessions working on calculating average speed, just like the direct instruction group. But they spent most of these classes floundering on their own and doing many things wrong. It was only during the seventh and final class that they learned the correct way to approach these problems. So did all of this floundering help or hinder their learning? To find out, both classes were given a 35-minute, five-item post-test. This consisted of three simple problems, one complex problem, and one type of problem that neither of them had done before. As you can probably imagine, in the early stages of learning, the direct instruction group did way better than the productive failure group. The direct instruction group averaged a score of 91.4% on their homework. Meanwhile, the productive failure group performed miserably on their unguided attempts to solve the complex problems. Only 2 out of the 12 groups, or 16%, arrived at the correct solutions. And when they had to work on the problems individually, their average score of 11.5% was even worse. But a very different picture emerges when you look at the group's performance on the post-test. On the final test, the performance between the two groups flipped, and the productive failure group outscored the direct instruction group by a significant margin. On the simple problems, the productive failure group earned an average score of 84.8% versus 75.3% for the direct instruction group. And on the complex problem, the productive failure group earned an average score of 59.7% versus 42.4% for the direct instruction group. But isn't failure and floundering and mistake-making bad? Why did productive failure seem to work so well? Well, students often ask for help before trying to solve problems on their own and teachers are accustomed to providing help. I mean, it's certainly faster and more efficient in the short term to offer the right fix or technique rather than withholding the right answer or strategy and letting the students struggle, search, and look in all the wrong places. 
However, in much the same way that spaced or random or variable practice lead to worse performance in the short term, but better performance in the long term, it seems that the goal of productive failure is not to get the correct answer faster and more easily via shallower learning, but instead to cultivate a deeper understanding of the fundamental principles and various ways of arriving at a solution, even at the expense of short-term performance. In addition, the productive failure approach also seems to increase engagement in the learning process. Here's some quotes from teachers who were involved in the study. I was not only surprised by the kinds of ideas and methods students developed to solve the problems, but also their ownership of their ideas. I mean, during the consolidation, I could see that they really wanted to know why their methods did not work, or how someone else's method was better, and how the correct way of solving the problem was better. Another teacher said, In our usual lessons, they simply accept what we tell them, our explanations and stuff. This is how to do it, and they just take it. But here, they were not ready to just take our explanations so easily. They wanted to defend their ideas and not give up without a fight, sort of. I mean, not a fight, but you know there was this engagement in understanding why, why, why. How might you apply this concept to your own teaching, or your own learning for that matter? One example that comes to mind is fingerings and bowings. I remember one of my early formative teachers withholding fingering recommendations when I was still quite young, encouraging me to come up with some of my own. I felt totally lost at the time, and the idea of having to pull fingerings out of thin air was completely foreign. I thought I was supposed to do whatever was printed in the music, or whatever she gave me. I did feel lost for a while, and I came up with some pretty funky fingerings, but over the years, I came to take great pride in thinking up my own clever fingerings and bowings designed to enhance the character of a phrase, or make challenging passages easier and more reliable under pressure. You can find links to this week's study and other related practice hacks at bulletproofmusician.com blog. If you found this episode helpful, please do share it with a friend or practice buddy who you think would also enjoy experimenting with it during the coming week. And if you'd like to explore this sort of thing in more depth, whether it be to get more out of your daily practice or to get better at managing performance pressure and shrinking that gap between what you can do in the practice room and what comes out on stage, you can learn more about the live and self-paced courses that are available at bulletproofmusician.com courses.